You jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not very convincing, to be honest. Why don't you go yourself, you tiny brain, and I hope this gets picked up. Because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too annoying for me. You can't handle the criticism, can you? Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Okay, hey, this is Garrison, and welcome to the most interesting people I know. It is good to be back. It has been over a year since I released an episode. I'm sorry to be away. To be honest, I got a little bit burnt out on making the show. Some of it was pandemic blues, and uh, I am very happy though to be coming back and uh, excited to be rebooting. We've got some exciting guests planned and also some plans to possibly scale the show up. And uh, really, I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to interview Rucker Bregman about one of my favorite books, uh, Humankind, A Hopeful History. I also was uh, very pleased to get an unprompted shout out in the 80,000 Hours podcast uh, by Rob Wiblin. And uh, I got to say, I, I appreciate that people actually care and, and want the show to come back. So I'm really thrilled to be announcing the reboot of The Most Interesting People I Know. So as I mentioned, my guest today is Rucker Bregman. Rucker is the best-selling author of Utopia for Realists and uh, Humankind, A Hopeful History. He has been profiled in the New York Times and interviewed on The Daily Show. Rupert Murdoch has been spotted reading his book. And Tucker Carlson called him a fucking moron. I first came across Rucker years ago when a friend was reading Utopia for Realists. The book, which argues for UBI, open borders, and a 15-hour work week, intrigued me, but I'm ashamed to admit I still have not read it. He did pop back up on my radar when he appeared at Davos, the annual gathering of the super wealthy, and lambasted the audience for not talking about taxes. The viral moment he created led to an invitation onto Tucker Carlson's show, where Rucker's challenge to the Fox News hosts led to what can only be described as a meltdown. In our interview, Rucker goes deeper into the full story of both events than I've seen anywhere else. We spend the bulk of the interview discussing his book, Humankind, which argues that people are actually pretty decent, but power corrupts. This is, as I mentioned, one of my favorite books, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. We wrap up with a discussion of Rucker's relationship with effective altruism, the philosophy and social movement trying to do as much as possible to improve the world. In particular, we discuss his career and the publication of Utopia for Realists, the unlikely success of that book, his trip to Davos, making Tucker Carlson lose his mind, veneer theory and why Rousseau is underrated, how people actually behave in disasters, why carpet bombing cities backfires, why distance kills, the domestication of humans, why socializing makes us smart, the problems with Stanley Milgram's shock experiments, the replication crisis, criticisms of Rucker's portrayal of hunter-gatherer life, his journey to EA, his ideas for solving EA's billionaire problem, his plans for an EA-adjacent book, the broader changes to effective altruism over the years, hijacking status for good, and how committing your career to helping others might actually make you the happiest. Uh, I'm really excited, as I mentioned, to be bringing this interview to you after so much time, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rucker Bregman. Rucker, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to catch up, even if it's remote. Um, really excited to chat. And I thought we'd just kind of go through your career a little bit and your writing mm -hmm. and then wrap up with a discussion of 
your relationship with effective altruism, your journey there. Uh, but to start with, can you tell me about uh, writing Utopia for Realists and how old you were when that book came out? Sure. So it was published in 2014 in the Netherlands. And at the time I was, uh, let's see, how old was I? 26? Um, I'd been publishing, you know, all the chapters of the book as essays on the correspondent, a journalism platform uh, that I've been working for for the past nine years. And that's really, uh, you know, made my whole career, basically. Um, I just came out of college and was wondering what to do with the rest of my life. The plan was to do a PhD. Then I looked at a list of dissertations that other history PhDs had written at Utrecht University, you know, where I was studying. And uh, to be honest, I found all of it boring. Uh, you know, all this hyper-specialization, asking questions that I didn't really care about, you know, something that happened with farmers in the north of the Netherlands from 1347 to 1349, but not 1350, because that's a completely different story. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, I thought I want to do something different. Um, so I worked for one year at a Dutch newspaper called the Volkskrant. It's a little bit like the Guardian, you could say. Um, and, um, you know, gained some career capital there, but also was quite unhappy. And then I was just very, very lucky that this new platform was founded called The Correspondent, which is has many things in common with effective altruism. Um, so the slogan is that we provide an antidote against the daily news grind and try to focus on the big picture, you know, the things that really, really matter. So um, the whole framework of tractability, neglectedness, scope, that fits fits very well with uh, with our journalism. Um, you could compare it to Vox.com. Uh, we were founded around the same time. The correspondent has tried to expand into the English-speaking world. That was sadly a failure. Um, it was the biggest crowdfund in the history of journalism, so that was great. But we only lasted for one year and then went bust. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was a bummer. I, I read about that as a case study, just in evaluating journalism. Um, yeah. And it seemed to get yeah, a the lot big of problem, I guess, people. is that um, we didn't really have our own bubble. Um, so I assume a lot of people like UNESCO or the United Nations, but no one would pay to subscribe. <laughs> right. Right. And that was our problem. We were for everyone. Transnational mm. journalism about everyone's problems. And yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think having like super fans or people who are like your core audience is, is really important for building any exactly. kind of media yeah. project. Um, and yeah, so this book was super successful. I, I remember seeing it. I was on vacation in uh, Barcelona and like somebody I met there was reading it and uh, the title jumped out to me. Um, mm -hmm. I sadly did not read it, which was a mistake um, because I, <laughs> I've now read Humankind and, and really loved it. Um but uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that was like having that come out and having it be so successful and, and why you think it, it connected with people? Well, the funny story is that initially it wasn't all that successful. Um, we published it, as I said, in 2014 in the Netherlands and sold maybe a couple of thousand copies. Uh, but um, I guess one of the reasons why initially it wasn't so successful in the Netherlands is because we as the correspondent had you know criticized other journalists a lot and then we came out with our first book and so i guess reviewers at other newspapers were not like oh yeah let's give that book 
a lot of attention. Um, so, you know, it did reasonably well for one, two years. And then my publisher here in the Netherlands said, okay, let's translate it. To be honest, that had always been my dream. Um, I had deliberately written the book in a way that it could easily be translated uh, into English, you know, not uh, chosen too many Dutch examples. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, uh, again, I was lucky. They just financed the whole translation and um, decided to try uh, to, to publish it in English. Again, that was a complete failure, I must say. So we did what usually uh, desperate authors do. Um, there's this thing called Amazon Create Space. I'm not sure if it still exists, but it's what you do if you can't find an author, you know, when you've written a really bad novel um, uh, or when you can't find a publisher, I'm sorry. Um, we published that and uh, it did nothing. At the time, I was my own PR agent. Uh, I managed to get one op-ed in The Guardian, uh, but there wasn't a single review in <laughs> anywhere, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah didn't get to do any interviews about it. Then uh, a bit of time passed and I had, again, dinner with my publisher. I remember this this very well because it was the craziest week of my life, career-wise. Uh, it was a dinner on Monday where we were sort of evaluating the whole process and had to acknowledge that, yeah, it didn't really work out the way we hoped it would. And then my publisher said, okay, let's try one last thing. Let's see if we can find a literary agent for you. Uh, that could, you know, push the book in other markets. We could even, you know, pull the book off the market and then pretend it has never been published because it's got so little attention, right? <laughs> we could just claim it was new. No one has seen it. Um, and um, she, my publisher, had just uh, met another colleague who had just spoken to, you know, a literary agent. And pure coincidence would have it that uh, a week later was the Frankfurt Book Fair. You know, this is the big moment every year um, when publishers around the globe um, sell sell their authors ba basically to other publishers. Oh, and, and especially literary agents obviously do that. Um, so yeah, we, we, or my publisher wrote a, a short, I think one pager uh, about my book. We had the translations obviously. And what also really helped is that I had two blurbs as I said, I was my own PR agent at the time and I had emailed, spammed everyone I could find on the internet. It's really funny. Uh, you sort of uh, uh, get to know different authors from a different side. Mm -hmm. I think it says a lot about authors if they respond um, to nobodies. Right? I try to keep that in mind. So, for example, Noam Chomsky quickly replied, Oh, with a yeah. thoughtful uh, reply. Tyler Cowen quickly replied. He didn't like the book. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he uh, he had a very nice nice comment. Um, I think that says a lot about someone. Uh, Steven Pinker read the book, and he also liked it. Um, so, as you know, I have quite, quite substantial disagreements with him. Yeah. But I think it says a lot about someone if, uh, if you just read a book from someone who's absolutely nobody. Uh, provide a blurb, etc., um, And that obviously helped a lot when, when we were uh, pitching this to a literary agent. And then, uh, yeah, basically the night before the book fair, everything exploded. Um, it was pitched to different publishers and there was a big American publisher, Little Brown, that had a huge offer. And a week later, I was about to go on book tour in more than 20 countries. So wow. <laughs> it was a very strange experience. Wow, that's wild. And, and this ultimately led to you 
being invited to Davos. Um, and I think this is how you popped back up on under my radar. Uh, can you tell me that story and, and how you ended up there? Sure. So one of the ideas in Utopia for Realist was the idea of giving everyone a guaranteed basic income. Mm -hmm. um, when I wrote about this, it was um, a fairly unknown idea. Obviously, the idea has been around for like two centuries, but right. it, people had basically forgotten about it. And um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I wrote about it. it was a couple of chapters in Utopia for Realists are about basic income, one of those utopias that perhaps could become reality. And um, in the years after that, the idea became more and more popular. I think especially because of all the anxiety around automation. Mm -hmm. That was really a hype around the time. Like, oh, the robots will all take our jobs. I think today we've all forgotten about that because there's a huge shortage in, in, in labor markets yeah. uh, around the world. But at the time, that was very uh, fashionable to worry about that. Maybe it'll come back in five or ten years. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I guess that's why they invited me at the World Economic Forum. They thought, okay, we want to do something with automation and basic income. Let's see, who who are people who've written about this? And then at the time, you could find like 10 people who had written about basic income for a broader audience. And nine out of 10 were, you know, old men with gray beards. <laughs> and then there was this one, you know, funny Dutch guy. Well, let's invite him. I guess that's that was uh, uh, their thinking. Uh, so that's how I ended up there. Yeah. And, and once you were there, um, you did something that I, I'm guessing doesn't happen too often, which is you, you basically called everyone out for uh, hypocrisy, more or less. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I had been invited actually the year before already to go to Davos, but I couldn't go because I was on a book tour. And and I almost didn't go that year because <laughs> initially they didn't want to pay for my uh my hotel and 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 my flight and Wait, really? i just thought <laughs> it was that's absurd <laughs> yeah yeah i just thought it was too expensive and i said oh well I, I don't care about going to davos so i said never mind and then at the last moment they said okay okay we'll pay for your uh, for your stay and i said okay okay i'll, I'll come over um i think they regretted that afterwards <laughs> <laughs> it was the it was the worst investment decision i guess in the history of davos um but uh yeah, for me, it was basically just out of curiosity that I went there. I knew, obviously, that the rich and famous went there every year to discuss the world's biggest problems. Uh, but as the days went by, I I just became more and more frustrated with the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Um, you know, all these events about inequality and feminism and, and, and inclusion and participation and blah, 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 blah. And, and nothing about tax avoidance and tax evasion. There was one panel uh, that was um, in the media center, which was really, you know, it was not the most pre prestigious place to be when you were at Davos. And it was a small panel that I guess only like 15 people or something like that attended. Uh, and I remember that the journalist, the German journalist behind the Panama Papers was there. Oh, wow. And, and you know, he's... He's one of my heroes, right? He, uh, I really admire the man, but he didn't get to speak at all, or he, he made a couple of short comments, and it was mainly the um, minister finest of Ireland talking, uh, saying that, no, 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 tax evasion is not a problem, right? <laughs> and here we have Ireland, right? It's one of the biggest tax paradises in the world. Yeah. Um, so I, I just was very frustrated with the hypocrisy of, of it all. Went back to my hotel room, and I thought, I'll just sit this one out, go back on Friday, 
and then had a Skype call with my wife who said, what are you doing there? And I said, well, <laughs> this and that. And she said, well, you got to say something about it. And I knew I had one uh, televised panel left, right? Or film panel. Mm-hmm. That, was, uh, that was on Friday with uh, Jane Goodall and someone from MasterCard and... Anyway, it was it was about inequality and about basic income and about poverty. And I knew they were going to ask me about my my book, basically. Um, so I thought, OK, let's pull a stunt. Let's prepare a little speech uh, about what I really think about this whole thing. And uh, yeah, that went viral. Yeah, that, and that's great. And we'll have a, a clip of that in, in the show. This is my first time at Davos. And uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, 1,500 private jets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on, it's, we gotta be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it, taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. And I also love, it's like, it doesn't really matter what the question is when you're doing something like this, like that'll get edited out and then like whatever the clip is that you have afterwards, it's like what will go around. Um, it's just a funny thing. It's about really funny just, because what you see in the clip is not what really happened. That's so often, right, with these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the woman to the left of me in the video is, it seems she's very uncomfortable with, with what I'm saying. So it seems like she's the kind of, she's the billionaire who's like, oh, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. I don't like all this talk about taxes, taxes, taxes. In reality, she really liked it. She came afterwards. She came to me and said, "Oh, that was really powerful, man." But she just delivered the the perfect performance that was necessary for the video, where you have this feeling like, "Oh, she's sitting uncomfortably, you know, in her in her seat." And I obviously had the World Economic Forum logo behind me, so when you watch it, you think, "Oh, there must be a lot of billionaires in the room." Mm-hmm. I don't think there was a single billionaire in the room. There were mostly like journalists and a couple of young people from the you know world economic forum global leaders uh, program uh, and most people in the audience really liked it but there was just one gift you know this this guy from yahoo the cfo former cfo of yahoo and he was just the perfect boomer right mm-hmm. complaining about oh no inequality is not a problem why do you keep going on about taxation did you actually know that unemployment has been going down 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 and then winnie banjama who was the executive director of oxfam at the time completely destroyed the man yeah right it was saying like it's not about you know um uh, just employment it's about dignity of work right mm-hmm. that's that's what we should be talking about so yeah uh, and that obviously wasn't planned. That just happened. Um, initially, by the way, the video didn't do all that much, but it was picked up by Now This. Perhaps you know yeah. them. They make like viral video content for basically leftist progressive purposes in the US. And they, yeah, they edited it in a really perfect way. And that was a, that was a couple of days later on Monday. And only then it was boom. So there's a lot of steps. Um, and and what you see isn't really what happened. Yeah, and it, it's more or less what happened, but not really. <laughs> yeah, and, and this this went viral, got shared around a lot, and this led to you being invited onto Tucker Carlson. 
Um, and then this video actually might have even done better. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, tell me what, what happened there. Well, um, obviously a lot of media around the world wanted me to talk about what happened uh, at Davos. And um, uh, a good friend of mine is a guy named Johan Hari. Uh, you may know him. He's mm -hmm. written a, a couple of Chasing books the for a broader audience. Yeah, Chasing the Screams about the war on drugs. Um, and uh, he's also written about uh, depression and the social causes of depression. He's, he's just recently published a book about how our attention spans have been killed by social media and capitalism, yeah. etc. cetera. Uh, anyway, um, he's a friend of mine and um, he's, um, he's really good at talking to people from both sides on the political spectrum. So when he publishes a book, he also goes on Tucker Carlson. That's basically his strategy, right? To have as, as big an audience as possible. And I think there's something to be, to be set for that, right? You can always preach to the choir, but you can also try and, and use maybe a different kind of language to pitch, pitch, uh, to pitch uh, progressive and, and leftist kind of ideas to an audience that you would normally uh, never speak to. So anyway, uh, he had a contact at, uh, at Tucker Carlson and, and, and pitched me there. And, and um, they said, yeah, sure, we want to have Rutger on. Um, I heard that on Friday, it was just before the weekend. And it was a, it was a really busy weekend for me because uh, I was moving places. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, I didn't have much time to prepare. But that Friday evening, I was drinking beers with a couple of colleagues at The Correspondent. And we were just, yeah, we were just making fun and joking like, okay, what should Rutger say when he goes on Fox News? And then a really good friend of mine, he said, well, you should call him a millionaire who's funded by billionaires, right? So uh, that line actually came from him. Then, to be honest, I basically forgot about the interview. Um, then on Monday, woke up again and I thought, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to Tucker Carlson. Um, and there's, a, as you know, there's a six hour time difference. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was going to be uh, recorded at just before the, the show would air at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. So that would be in the middle of the night for me, 2 a.m. Um, uh, a cat picked me up at my house and uh, went to the studio, was in the middle of Amsterdam, completely empty studio, you know, uh, complete silence in the city. Uh, and just this one um, re really nice producer. I think he was just still a student at the time. I'm not really sure. Uh, but anyway, we were again joking about, okay, I'm going to go on Fox News. Um, uh, I think I'm going to pull a stunt. Um, and they're probably not going to air it. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I asked the producer, um, can you record it? And he said, no, 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 I can't do that uh, on our site. I don't have the equipment to do that here. And I said, okay, well, no, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll have a funny anecdote to share with our friends yeah. uh, when this is over. And they're, they're not going to air it anyway, but let's see what happens. And then, well, uh, you've seen the whole thing. Uh, it all happened. And, <laughs> and then afterwards, the producer, you know, came out of his... Uh, uh, room and said i've recorded the whole thing you know it's it's on my it's on my iphone here um and uh i said okay well can you airdrop it to my phone uh, i tried to upload it to twitter that night uh didn't work i don't know i had a lack of bandwidth or something like that and we said okay let's let's have a, have another beer and i went home and um uh, went to went to sleep 
uh, woke up the next morning, watched the thing again. I was like, holy shit, this is a hand grenade. This is really powerful. And then we consulted like three, three lawyers or something like that. And then three weeks later, we had the guts to, to actually publish it. And, and we cooperated with now this to, uh, uh, to make it as effective as possible. But yeah, it was a bit of an accident, that one. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's great. And uh, I mean, I, I think there's this debate that happens on the left, especially about like, should you go on right wing platforms to talk about your ideas? Like Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. did a town hall on Fox News, uh, I think with some people in Pennsylvania. And uh, it was just very successful. You had like a lot of people in the audience applauding for Medicare for all. And hmm. uh, I think like the the general take that I believe is like, if you go with a message that is not compromising your values and you're reaching that audience, then um, you you can do a lot of good there. But then when somebody like Glenn Greenwald goes and almost co-signs things and like just plays yeah, up their agreement, exactly. like that's problematic because you are endorsing it. But this idea that like you're giving them a platform, it's it's the biggest cable news show in, in the country. Uh, yeah, they already have yeah. a platform. <laughs> it is difficult though. I mean, a lot of people have complimented me and saying, "Oh, you were so calm," you know, when you were criticizing Tucker. And calling him uh, a millionaire who's funded by billionaires <laughs> and a hypocrite and blah, blah, blah. But you got to imagine, it was the middle of the night, 2 a.m. in Amsterdam. I was only hearing him in my ear and there was a delay of five seconds. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that's actually the whole secret of the video is that when you watch it, you have the feeling that Tucker is dumbstruck all the time, that he doesn't know what to yeah. say. Oh, that's so you good. Know? <laughs> but it's actually the latency. <laughs> <laughs> but we were like, we're not going to correct for that in our video. We're just going to, you know, raw, unedited video of what we have on our side. I mean, they should have aired it if they if they don't want yeah. that, right? If they want to correct for that. They didn't do that. Okay, then we'll just uh, uh, share what we have. And Tucker doesn't look good on that. No. And no, sorry, we're not going to explain that there's a latency to the general audience. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's got so, that face, that like dumbstruck face all the time. Yeah, exactly. But that's because of the latency. Yeah. It's just because he's waiting for like, he doesn't hear me yet. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah. Um, so again, it, what you see is not what really happened. Uh, I mean, Tucker Carlson doesn't wait for five seconds to respond to something. It's not like, <sighs> but that's, yeah, it does look like that in, in the video. That's, that's awesome. I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but I went to Davos to speak truth to power. And I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You might not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires. And that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues. But I am talking about these issues. Yeah, only now. Come on, you jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, It's not very convincing, to be honest. Why don't you go f*** yourself, you tiny brain. And I hope this gets picked up. Because you're a moron, I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too f- annoying for me. Uh, you can't handle the criticism, can you? <laughs> um, and yeah, no, I, I think it was just these were things that I'm guessing propelled your career further and, and got you a, a wider audience. Like, what, what did that translate to in, in practice for, for your writing and, and your career? Well, it gets you a bigger platform, of yeah. course. Right, sure. Um, but you don't want to be the guy who you know who had his 15 seconds of fame on tucker carlson or on davos right right? i hope to do a bit more than that with my career but sure it gives you easier access to i don't know all kinds of shows uh i went on the daily show after that that probably wouldn't have happened without davos and and tucker 
but we talked mainly about my book uh, when I was at The Daily Show. So not about, well, a little bit about Davos, but not about Tucker. Right. So um, I always try to use these moments to, yeah, go back to the ideas that I actually care about. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that is like in the clips themselves. But uh, yeah, I think as a hook to get people talking about your work is, is, is great. Um, and yeah, I wanted to move on to uh, Humankind, which uh, is your latest book, at least the one translated to, to English. And I mm-hmm. recently read and finished it. And uh, I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed this book a lot. Um, I think that it was just, I, I was familiar with some of the ideas in it, but there was still a ton of new stuff there. A lot of like revisionism about various famous psychology studies or or claims made that just don't really hold up. Um, and it reminds me a lot of like Steven Pinker's work, but uh, much more of a left-wing perspective and, and I think better mm-hmm. empirics uh, <laughs> than, uh, than a lot of his, his recent work. But can you just tell me a bit about like what the thesis is of this book? Sure. The short summary would be most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. I think that's the anarchist's fault for you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the anarchists have been right all along. <laughs> Most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. It's just that anarchists are pretty bad at building institutions. And what we need to do is to build institutions that are founded on this particular worldview. Um, um, a somewhat longer summary would be that for centuries, there's been this idea or ideology around that uh, is sometimes called veneer theory. The idea that our civilization is just a thin veneer, just a thin layer, and that below that lies raw human nature. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, humans are fundamentally selfish. Um, you know, people will have heard or maybe even read Thomas Hobbes, his famous book, The Leviathan, um, in which he argued that in the state of nature, uh, we were engaging in a war of all against all. We were living lives that were nasty, brutish, and short. And yeah, that supposedly people are fundamentally selfish deep down. This has been an incredibly influential idea in Western culture. It comes back again and again and again. You can find it among the Asian Greeks, in Orthodox Christianity, you know, this notion of original sin, that we're all sinners deep down. Um, surprisingly, it's also at the heart of Enlightenment philosophy. Uh, if you read the founding fathers of the United States, for example, John Adams once wrote an essay with the title, All Men Would Be Tyrants If They Could that was really um, central to the thinking of the founding fathers. Like, how do we control the selfish tendency of these people who, you know, deep down um, are basically just beasts? That's that's what we got to design the whole constitution around, around this fundamental insight. Uh, it's at the heart of social Darwinism, obviously, uh, in the 19th century. And you could also argue that it's just, uh, at, at the heart of, you know, capitalism. Again, this idea that people are fundamentally selfish. Um, we all remember Gordon Gecko, greed is good, um, the rise of neoliberalism uh, since the 70s. Uh, so again and again and again, uh, the idea that people are fundamentally selfish has been really, really dominant in our culture. Um, the reason I wanted to write this book is that I started to notice that in many, many different scientific disciplines, anthropology, archaeology, sociology, psychology, it seemed to me that a different picture was emerging, a different view of human nature, a more hopeful view of who we are as a species. I'm not saying that we're angels. I'm not saying we're good or, you know, fundamentally good. We're clearly not. But um, 
we're much better than we thought we were. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it like that. So there's the eternal battle between Thomas Hobbes on the one hand and Jean-Jacques Rousseau on the other hand. And usually Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, is, is seen as uh, naive and um, unrealistic, right? Uh, but if I look at the latest evidence we have from archaeology and anthropology, and I read his original essay again, you know, on the origins of inequality, I'm like, huh, Rousseau was basically right. That's basically what science tells us today. So that was the working title, actually, of this book. Rousseau was right. <laughs> yeah, and the veneer theory, uh, I hadn't heard of this term before, but it really struck true to me as something you see everywhere. Um, I was thinking a lot about The Walking Dead, the, the TV show, mm -hmm. and like all, all these like post-apocalyptic things where, yeah, as soon as the creature comforts go away, as soon as there's conditions of scarcity, uh, people are just at each other's throats, you know, willing to kill people strangers just because it gives yeah. you some slight advantage yeah. um it's very dominant in our culture it and feels especially real. in entertainment yeah, it, yeah and it feels like oh this is like gritty and realistic um yeah and you just go through so many examples of people in conditions of basically local apocalypses um and they don't really act that way like from hurricane katrina to the cities that were bombed during world war ii people actually end up being a lot better than you would expect, and, and arguably better than they are in the default uh, <laughs> default world. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we've got decades of research done by the Disaster Research Center in the U.S. Uh, they've done more than 500 case studies uh, into how people behave when there's an earthquake or a tsunami or a different kind of natural disaster. And a very clear picture emerges from that research, which is that most people behave altruistically when something like that happens. Um, they don't panic and they try and help each other. Most lives are saved actually by people themselves uh, and not by professional emergency services. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the, the view that you get from watching disaster movies is highly naive uh, and has nothing to do with how things really happen. Uh, Re Rebecca Solnit has written a beautiful book uh, that's mostly about what happened after Katrina, where she also shows that this view, this this cynical view of human nature had very pernicious consequences. So even the emergency service didn't dare to go in um, the city, you know, in the disaster area, because they were worried about all the reports that were going around, all the rumors about looting and violence and plundering and raping and you name it. And it turned out that Actually, that, those were just rumors. Um, it didn't really happen. Uh, but the consequences of, of those rumors were obviously really, really bad. Uh, people didn't get the help they needed. Um, and that's actually something I come back to again and again in the book, that our view of human nature tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. On the one hand, you can look at sort of the empirical scientific evidence um, about what humans are really like. Uh, but it's also important to, to remember that what you believe about humans, uh, yeah, it's, it's performative. Um, how you design your organizations uh, or, or what you assume in other people is often what you get out of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like this debate comes up when I talk, argue with conservatives. And, and you know, my dad is somebody who's like dispositionally more conservative and he'll make mm -hmm. these claims about like, you know, all these ideas, like they sound great, but people are fundamentally like very selfish mm -hmm. or corruptible or, or whatever. Um, 
And so I need him to read your book and hopefully he'll at least listen <laughs> to this conversation. <laughs> uh, and, and can you give the example of uh, how people behaved on 9-11? Sure. Um, there are shocking eyewitness reports of people going down the stairs of the Twin Towers as they were burning and people literally saying, no, you go first. No, you go first, right? It's, it's really astounding that even in such moments of extreme danger and panic, people still have the ability to be so decent. Um, and that's, uh, that's also something, actually, if you read about uh, the Titanic, I mean, if you've seen the movie, yeah. you get the idea that you know, everyone was panicking and trying to get to the, to the boats. Uh, if you read the actual eyewitness reports, it's very different. You know, it was relatively calm, um, the evacuation. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's an, that's an important story to tell um, because so often, yeah, we make huge mistakes. I also tell the story of the Blitz. Maybe this is a more famous one, um, you know, where the Germans thought they could quickly break the British morale with aerial bombing, uh, turned out the opposite happened, right? Morale actually increased uh, in Britain during the Blitz. Um, then the British thought, oh, this must be because we are such great people, right? It must be because British culture is superior to any culture in the world, and in particular superior to German culture. So in 1943 and 1944, when they were wondering, okay, what shall we do with our fleet of bombers? Um, they said, well, we're going to bomb the hell out of German cities because obviously we can break German morale because the Germans, you know, they're, they don't have the strong character that the British people have. Turned out the same thing happened again. And uh, later it was estimated that actually the cities that were bombed the heaviest saw increased production um, of, uh, you know, the wartime industry. Yeah. Um, so, um yeah, again and again, people make the same mistake. In Vietnam, similarly, you know, there were three times as many bombs thrown on Vietnam as during the whole Second World War. And yeah, uh, the Americans basically lost the war, yeah. right? Um, so it turns out that it's it's very difficult to win a war in this way. Yeah. But somehow we, we, we fail to learn the lesson. Yeah, the Doomsday Machine, a book by Daniel Ellsberg, the uh, famous activist and uh anti-nuclear proponent uh talks about this this idea of like saturation bombing of cities and mm -hmm. um it both led it was a result of uh basically trying to protect pilots from like anti-aircraft fire and, and and other mm -hmm. planes and so they would fly at night and this was yeah for the safety of the pilots and then this would not be uh a very effective thing they couldn't target military installations because they were too small and not very visible yeah but cities, you can see from from the sky, uh, from thousands of feet up at night, and so they would just target cities and kind of come up with this justification. And he argues yeah. that this kind of like steady increase over time of of the acceptability of targeting civilian populations in city centers um, led to nuclear weapons doctrine, where it was like now an acceptable thing to do. Whereas before World War II, it was actually something that like even like Hitler <laughs> agreed we should not be doing this. Um, like like yeah. Roosevelt, uh, I think, um, and the British Prime Minister as well, agreed that we should not yeah. be targeting these, these city centers. So yeah. it had this really horrible effect of like, now we just live in a world where yeah, nuclear yeah, weapons yeah. are pointed at, you know, the largest cities in the world. 
it's easy to forget that actually more people die during sort of the conventional bombing of, of Tokyo than because of the nuclear bombs yeah. uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, I also read for my book, The Memoirs of John Kenneth Galbraith, mm. the famous economist who at the time was a young employee for the American military and doing research, research into you know the effect of the bombing. And he called it the greatest miscalculation of the war. Yeah, that sounds sounds right to me. Um, yeah. And yeah, I know it's really horrifying stuff that that uh, the Germans did to the British, but then the Americans and the British did to the Germans and the Americans did to the yeah. Japanese. And yeah, the number of people killed in the fire bombings uh, of Tokyo uh, is just truly astonishing. And yeah. uh, probably, I, I don't know, I, I don't know enough of the history to claim how much of this had an effect on bringing the war to an end, but it is really grim and it's... Uh, yeah, just hard to confront. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's also a good example of that distance is so important in uh, the psychology of killing. Um, I think there's quite a bit of evidence that people find it pretty hard to kill another human being, um, which is uh, interesting. If it's true that humans are really killer apes and we're fundamentally selfish, then you would suspect that it's relatively easy to be violent and we m maybe should even enjoy it. But um, even though it's true that humans, in some ways, are the cruelest species in the animal kingdom, right? We do horrific things that no other, no penguin would ever think mm -hmm. of, right? Concentration camps and, and genocides and you name it. Um, we, we do find it pretty hard, actually, to be violent. One of the best books I read on that was by Randall Collins. Uh, the title is Violence. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, he basically argues that because People are hardwired for sociability. Uh, yeah, we, we just find it very hard to hurt or even kill another human being. And if we do it, um, we often kill something inside ourselves as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, you see this in again in during wars is that the soldiers who've actually killed, especially if it was up close killing, are much more likely to develop PTSD and become traumatized. Which suggests to me that even though we're capable of this horrific behavior, it's not exactly what you know we're evolved to do. Right. If we're really killer apes, you know, if, if really in the state of an ape, if Stephen Pinker is right, basically, and we're, we were very, very violent in prehistory, then why do people get traumatized if they kill someone else? That, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I guess you could come up with an argument that if you're socialized to not committing violence in your default world, mm -hmm. um, and then you know, you spend like the first 20 years of your life in this world where it's like, yeah, not okay. And then suddenly you're thrust into a situation where actually no, you're supposed to kill somebody that like mismatch could be a problem. Whereas if you mm. grew up in like a more martial culture where you're like fighting with people as just a part of your daily life, um, this could be, yeah, more normalized, but I, I'm just making up a yeah, story that right makes now. Sense. That makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And we often forget just how violent um, general culture was in the past. Yeah. Um, and then I'm really talking about, uh, yeah, the civilized era, right? Which, uh, which starts with us becoming sedentary and inventing agriculture, which is a relatively short time ago, around 10, maybe 15,000 years ago. Um, uh, and yeah, many agricultural societies have been incredibly violent. Uh, and you could just just going down the streets, uh, say in the Middle Ages, for example, 
people would be very violent towards animals in public, very violent towards children, uh, obviously public hanging and execution of criminals. So, yeah, we find it pretty normal that, you know, most violence is, is hidden away today in, say, factory farms, for example. We don't see it anymore. Right. Yeah, I, I think that this kind of compartmentalizing, it, it both allows these things to persist uh, out of sight, out of mind. But then mm -hmm. it might also just be good that we're like not accustomed to it such that it becomes it is shocking and something that we, we oppose more readily when, when we do come across. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I one, one of the other remarkable facts you talk about is just most soldiers don't fire their guns in, in combat, even in, in these life or death situations, which just sounds really shocking because in World War Two, especially like you've this anecdote of American soldiers on a small island repelling a, a Japanese uh, invasion where it really is mm -hmm. like kill or be killed or the closest to that you can find. And I think you say like the majority of soldiers did not actually fire their weapons. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a controversial idea. Um, the first one who wrote about this was Samuel Marshall, an American historian and I think colonel at the time, who had the privilege to interview soldiers shortly after they'd been in combat. Mm. And he did this group interviews where basically everyone was allowed to say what happened and even, you know, go against superiors. Uh, Samuel Marshall really tried to um, create a culture where people would be willing and free to say what really happened. And so he claimed um, in, in his book, uh, what's it called, Men Against yeah. Fire, um, that only 15 to 25% of soldiers actually fired their guns during combat situations. Now, later it was, was discovered that his statistics were pretty shoddy. Mm -hmm. You know, it was probably just a guess. Um, and we, shouldn't, we should take this number, 50 to 25%, with a grain of salt. The reason I still buy into the theory is that other researchers have, um, yeah, found similar numbers. Um, and um, again, I would, I would love to point people to uh, Randall Collings' book, uh, Violence. He uses photographic evidence of combat situations. Um, so yeah, it's not just uh, Samuel Marshall. He was the first one to point out the phenomenon. Turns out that his evidence was probably pretty shoddy, but other people have, I think, done better work there. Um, it's not the thing I'm, I must say I'm most sure of in my book. The reason I included it is that it, it just makes sense to me if you, um, you know, uh, look at other things we know about human nature and our sociability and, um, you know, our yearning for friendliness, for example. Biologists literally talk about survival of the friendliest as the secret, secret of our success today. So that's the reason why I think it makes sense um, that if you just draft a soldier, um, that it will be very quickly for them to you know, immediately start killing. This should be true, by the way, of many of these soldiers who are now being drafted in the Russian army. So I guess that's a test of the theory. Right. Um, um, I'm not sure if someone's able to do the, the rigorous empirical research right now. Um, but what we know from modern armies is that they put in a lot of effort in, in conditioning, you know, their, their professional soldiers so that they'll be able to shoot to kill instinctively. Um, and that's perhaps also one of the more powerful arguments in favor of Samuel Marsh's theory is that the American th uh, military took it very, very seriously. Mm. 
right? So they they really changed their training because of his book, and his book is still read in in military academies and at West Point today. Um, so uh, yeah, people with skin in the game take it very seriously. Yeah, no, that that is good evidence. Um, and yeah, I wanted to talk more about this, uh, the domestication of humans, and and you call it like the the puppification of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, where yeah as animals domesticate they evolve um just different traits and like what is the evidence of that for for people so i guess we all know what domestication is um we've got dogs cows sheep goats and over the millennia we've domesticated them by selecting for tameness now what happens if you domesticate an animal is that you see a list of traits appear and together they're called the domestication syndrome. Charles Darwin already wrote about this in the 19th mm. century. So what you see happening is that domesticated animals have thinner bones, smaller brains, often white spots in their fur, uh, floppy ears. Um, there's this whole list basically. You'll, we now also know that there are certain genetic changes associated with domestication and the interesting thing is that if you look at humans, now a lot of these things have happened to us as well. We have thinner bones compared to our ancestors. We have smaller brains compared to our ancestors. Neanderthals actually have bigger brains than us. Um, and maybe most importantly, what happens when you domesticate an animal is that it, that it becomes more juvenile. It's as if these domesticated animals never really grow up. So, for example, a wolf, a wolf puppy likes to play around, but wolves get serious quite quickly in their life. Dogs are playful their Mm -hmm. whole life, right? And it seems to be that we humans are pretty playful as well, right? It it takes ages for us to grow up. Uh, Actually, we come into this world completely... Well, I just became a father uh, a year ago. And it's, it's pretty astonishing to just witness... How stupid my daughter still is <laughs> after a year, right? She's she's inca- incapable of, of anything, right? She's basically now she's in the phase where she's basically pointing at things. <laughs> That's the word for uh, that mm-hmm. in Dutch, <laughs> um, which is very endearing. But then if you compare it to what, say, uh, a wolf of one year old one year old can do, it's it's pretty pathetic. Uh, so um, yeah, that seems to be what has happened to us to humans is that we have been domesticated as well. But then the question is, who domesticated us? And the answer that biologists and and evolutionary anthropologists now give is that we have domesticated ourselves, which means that over the millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us, the tamest among us, who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. So friendliness was an adaptive trait. It helps to survive. and then um, that makes sense if you think about what life was like in prehistory. I mean, we, we now have the, the David Graeber, David Wengrow book in which they make the argument there was a huge amount of diversity, right? And there was basically anything was possible. Um, I'm pretty skeptical of that. I do, sure, there was a lot of diversity, right? That's, that's always true with human cultures. But um, there's also a case to be made that there must have been some consistency, otherwise you wouldn't have seen this self-domestication happening, right? So friendliness was was adaptive. It helped you to survive. It helped you to uh, obviously make make friends, and friends are your insurance policy when times get tough. Um, so uh, 
Yeah, that's basically the theory. And there's very striking evidence in favor of it. Perhaps my favorite piece of evidence is just um, human skulls. So if you compare human skulls from 50, 40, 30, 20,000 years ago, you can see the domestication happening. Um, we literally look nastier 50,000 years ago, if you look at these skulls, yeah. right? Um, yeah, we, we, we just have more, I don't know, juvenile, round, friendlier faces, I would say today. Um, there's also some people who argue that the whites of our eyes appear during domestication. Um, human eyes are really unique among primates um, because all the other primates, they've got a dark sclera, as they call it. It's the you know area around mm -hmm. your iris. Um, and if you look at a chimpanzee, it's pretty hard to track his or her gaze. Uh, because you can't really see what the chimpanzee is looking at because it doesn't have the white right. in the eyes, right? We humans, we give our way, way our gaze to all other members of our species and other, mem other species, um, which is a little bit weird, right? How could that ever been, have been an evolutionary advantage? Right. right. If we're really so Machiavellian and trying basically selfish all the time and, and getting as much as for ourselves as possible, then you would suspect that it's better to have a, uh, a poker mm -hmm. gaze, right? <laughs> uh, the chimpanzees are like poker players with sunglasses on, but we, we're not. Um, so there's some people who argue that this has happened in the course of domestication. And indeed, if you look at bonobos, um, they have uh, sclera that are less mm. dark, right? Uh, or, or brighter, and it's easier to track their case. And bonobos um, seem to be domesticated as well. Uh, you know, bonobos, famously, when, when two groups of bonobos meet each other, um, they don't have a war, but an orgy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, th this this was really interesting and compelling to me. And it's like, I have this kind of personal theory around uh, vulnerability and, and sharing and, and like how sharing information about yourself that might be a little bit personal uh, is a really great way to build intimacy with other people um and then people mm -hmm. who are always like closed off it's like oh i'd rather not talk about that it just makes me feel shut out and like less likely to yeah share. exactly exactly well this is another one of my favorite facts about humans is that apart from parrots we're the only animal in the whole animal kingdom with the ability mm. to blush which again from an evolutionary perspective is weird and fascinating at the same time. Why would we do that? Why would we involuntarily give away our feelings to other members of our species? Darwin was also fascinated by this. He wrote letters, you know, to all his contacts around the globe. You know, in Africa, in Asia, he said, are people blushing there as well? And then the letters came back. Yeah, they're blushing here as well. And it's like, huh, that is, why do people do that? And I think it's another um, uh, element to this survival of the friendliest. Yeah. Yeah, no. That, By the way, that concept is from Brian Hare, an evolutionary anthropologist that I would really recommend. He's written a great book with the... Right, this title. is where he was domesticating foxes. Yeah, yeah, that's another really... Well, it's a great story, but also um, uh, an important piece of evidence in favor of this theory. So uh, there was a Russian biologist, Dmitry Belyev, who in the 50s came up with this crazy idea to domesticate a wild animal. Uh, he wanted to do it with silver foxes, who at the time ha had not been domesticated. And he had the idea of domesticating an animal just in the course of, you know, a couple of decades, I guess that's what he hoped. But he, 
he had no idea how long the experiment would last. Maybe it would take like centuries or something. He didn't know that. Uh, but uh, together with Litmula Trut, if I pronounce her name correctly, um, who's written a, a really nice book about this, um, he, uh, yeah, he started with a group of silver foxes who were incredibly aggressive, right? These wild animals are really, really aggressive. But again and again, they selected like the two, 3% friendliest, right? Who were initially, it was just uh, like, they were all aggressive, but some were like a little bit less super yeah. aggressive, if you, if you get what I mean. Um, like we're a little bit slower, uh, biting, uh, <laughs> biting you in the leg. Um, so they started selecting for friendliness and uh, very quickly they saw the domestication syndrome appear again. But then most interestingly, when years later, Brian Hare, this evolutionary anthropologist, started doing intelligence tests um, and comparing how the wild foxes would perform to how the domesticated foxes would perform, he found out that actually the domesticated foxes were mm. smarter. So he came up with this brilliant line that is that if you want a smart fox, you don't se select for intelligence, but you select for friendliness. And again, this seems to be a really nice analogy uh, for what happened in the course of human evolution. Is that no, it wasn't that we were so smart and that that was, you know, the, the selectionary yeah. mechanism. No, it was um, this friendliness um, and that helped us to cooperate on a larger scale and build what anthropologists call cumul uh, cumulative cultures. Uh, and that's really the essence of progress, right? We humans individually were really, really stupid and incapable and, <laughs> you know, we have no idea what we do right. most of the time, right? But we're using technology now. I have no, I have no clue how this microphone <laughs> works. Um, so we're, we're hyper-specialized, um, but we can work together really, really well. Uh, there's one anthropologist, Sarah Hardy, who starts one of her books with this image of imagine, uh, you know, 200 chimpanzees going in an airplane and she very vividly describes you know how bloody that right. would be <laughs> right and we don't particularly enjoy you know uh sitting very close to one another yeah. in an airplane but usually no yeah. people die which is a, a huge achievement you know there's there are very few animals who would be able yeah. to do that yeah it's funny and i was just starting this other book called the the secret of our success uh which is about Oh yeah, that's a great, yeah. great book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, Henry. human cultures, yeah. and uh, he has a different example with uh, monkeys on airplanes. But uh, it's like imagine you know you and forty nine of your coworkers are dropped in uh, jungle in in Central Africa, uh, and then there's also fifty um, monkeys from Costa Rica that are are dropped there, and like you have to survive for two years, and like who's going to perform better? Um, yeah, <laughs> it seems yeah, quite yeah, intuitive yeah. in yeah, that case. Yeah. Like who's going to do well? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, he has this fantastic example of planet A and planet mm -hmm. B. And so planet A is populated by geniuses, you know, a, a, species, a primate species that's just really, really smart. Maybe a little bit like the Neanderthals who have bigger mm -hmm. brains than us. Uh, the geniuses come up with brilliant inventions all the time, right? They, they're very, very creative. But the problem is that they're not very social. So if they come up with something new, like say a new fishing rod, for example, that's more efficient at catching yeah. fish, um, they usually keep it to themselves. Now, imagine another planet that's full of copycats, um, and the copycats are pretty stupid, 
You know, they hardly ever come up with something new. They're very unoriginal. It's like, I don't know, only 1% of the copycats, maybe once in their life, come up with something interesting. But when they do, they tell everyone about it, right? It's uh, very quickly like, ah, I've got something new, I've got something new, right? So we humans are like that. Uh, And in the end, um, that second planet will have a much higher level of civilization and technological advancement than the first planet. Because that's really what progress is about. It's about sharing ideas. Right. Yeah. No, I, I thought that was extremely compelling and, and persuasive. Um, and yeah, I mean, almost everything that I know has been learned from somebody else, from a book, from yeah, some experience. Yeah, Very yeah, little of yeah, it yeah, is yeah. just like, oh, I thought of this thing or just deduced from yeah, first yeah, principles. Yeah. And sometimes you think you thought of something and then later you realize, oh God, I actually got it from there. Totally. There. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I think something that's really interesting as well in this book is you, you go through a bunch of examples of both famous kind of anecdotes from history where we just have the wrong idea about what, what happened, like like the Blitz, as you discussed. Um, but then mm-hmm. also these uh, famous psych experiments like uh, Robber's Cave uh, and the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Milgram Shock Experiments, the Bystander Effect, Kitty Genovese. Mm-hmm. And there's just major problems with each of these. Either the evidence was kind of like fabricated or um there are crucial pieces of information missing and uh yeah i guess there's like this what is it we're, we're confirmation bias we like have this idea that people are a certain mm-hmm. way and so we look for evidence suggesting that and, and are more responsive to it um mm-hmm. can you just go through let's say like uh the milgram shock experiments are, are i think uh, i think a lot of people know about the stanford prison experiment having some some problems but what was going on with with those some problems <laughs> to put it mildly yeah, maybe, maybe that was not it's enough. a total yeah, hoax yeah. <laughs> uh yeah sure so stanley milgram shock experiments probably one of the most famous experiments in the history of psychology um happened in the 60s very young professor stanley milgram uh, you know, very ambitious, wanted to make his mark and came up with this pretty brilliant setup of an experiment where uh, subjects would come in to the lab. They were told that they were, you know, going to do some kind of memory test. Um, they would just have to read out words and then judge how another person in another room that they couldn't see but could hear, um, uh, yeah, how, the, how they would perform. The subject didn't know that in reality the other the person in the other room was was actually an accomplice of the mm-hmm. researcher, and so what they would have to do is to give electric shocks whenever that person in the other room was making a mistake. Starts with fifteen volts, goes to thirty volts, forty five, etc., all the way up to four hundred fifty volts. And actually, the machine, the shock machine itself, had a label at four hundred fifty volts like dangerous, potentially lethal, yeah. etc. Now, the shocking finding that generated headlines all over the world was that 65% of people were willing to go all the way to 450 volts if only there was a man in a gray coat saying, it's fine, it's my responsibility, please continue the experiment. That's the super famous story, and you can see it in documentaries, there's probably feature films about it. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's... a story that's, yeah, made a big splash. And it comes back again and again. I think something in us wants, wants to believe this. At the time, it provided a really convenient and intuitive explanation, maybe for the atrocities of the Second World War. 
um, Stanley Milgram famously said that if you would just take, you know, an average sample of men from an American city, they could just just as easily have been, you know, the camp guards at, at Auschwitz. Um, and that, yeah, it's basically all about the mm -hmm. situation. Um, it provided powerful evidence, it seemed, for this situationism. It's, a, it's an approach in psychology that... Yeah, it basically, human behavior mostly depends on, on which situation they find themselves. Um, now, the interesting thing is that it took years before a psychologist, in this case, Gina Perry, who's an Australian psychologist, um, went uh, into the archives and basically looked up, okay, how did this actually happen? And she discovered huge problems with his research, right? A lot of pressure was put on the subjects. Um, uh, very often they deviated from the, the protocol. Um, so we actually now know that probably the majority of subjects resisted and didn't want to go right. all the way. Um, there's still something to struggle with because I, to be honest, I think there's the, the Milgram experience right. weren't a scam. There's still something there that we need to think about very deeply. Uh, Milgram initially asked colleagues um, what they would predict, right? Which was at the time quite innovative uh, to basically ask, ask other psychologists and say, okay, what do you think? Will it be 1%, 5%, 10%, 50% of people? And the vast majority of experts at the time said like uh, only one or 2% right. will do this. You know, only the, the psychopaths will do it. So even if the number goes down, even if it's maybe just 30 or 40%, of subjects who push the button, it's still, you know, pretty right. uncomfortable, right? It's, um, so I think there's still something there. The theory that Milgram had to explain this behavior is, in my view, complete nonsense though. He had the, what he called the identic state theory. So his idea is that, was basically that people turn mm. into robots, uh, is that they stop thinking for themselves. But you only have to watch, you know, a video of of some of the subjects in this kind of experiment and you realize they're not robots at all you know they're, they they're they are feeling deep emotions and are very conflicted and are very um worried about the situation and they doubt whether they should continue all the time and they ask a question is this really okay is this really okay are you sure uh, but again and again the, the man in the gray coat says no 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 harm is being done uh, even though you hear the other person screaming in the room I think most damning to the whole experiment was that um, the, va the majority of participants didn't believe the right. situation was real. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's probably something you should have <laughs> mentioned, you know, <laughs> if you do that <laughs> research. Um, the difference, though, with the Stanford Prison experiment is that the Milgram experiments have been replicated, at least mm -hmm. partially. There's no university, no ethical commission of a university that would say, okay, do the whole thing again, because it's obviously a highly unethical experiment. But there have been researchers that found a way around it, and it, it seems that it replicates pretty well. So, as I said, there's still something there, something that we need to deal with. Um, now, the explanation for why people behave in this way um, is uh, we, we need to find a different kind of explanation. So there, there are two British psychologists who... Uh, Haslam and Riker, who I think have come up with a pretty convincing explanation, which is all about, yeah, that pe people basically right. want to be helpful. Uh, they come in 
the lab with a feeling like, okay, I want to help science. Sure, I want to participate in the experiment. And then they're being dragged along. And you can really see that they're in doubt. Uh, they have basically two pro-social impulses at the same time. They want to help the researcher who says, no, everything is fine. But at the same time, they hear the victim screaming in the other room. And so you can really see that pulling them apart, um, which is very different from this agentic state theory, you know, where people supposedly become robots and just start pushing the button and don't care at all about what happens to the person yeah. in the other room. Yeah. No, I, the, the fact that so many people thought it was not real, uh, it was just like so shocking to me because I mean, all the things I mentioned, I think were taught to me in, in psychology 101 in college. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, there's a there's a very strong correlation um, in that uh, if people believed the situation was likely, they were much less likely to push uh, right. to go all the way to 450 volts. Uh, yeah. which again makes and, sense. And it's also kind of just like <laughs> beggars' beliefs that uh, you're just murdering people in this like Yale lab. <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But still, I mean. The Milgram experiments have been described as a zombie that just refuses to die. It comes back again and again. Mm -hmm. um, there's still something there. Yeah. And I, I think that's not the case for the Stanford Prison Experiment. I think the Stanford Prison Experiment, luckily, finally, is really dead now. Mm. What we can learn from it? Well, how not to do science. <laughs> it's basically a story about how all the things that could go wrong in science. Yeah. Um, which is also, you know pretty shocking because this has been in all the textbooks for for years and years um and he uh, you know simbardo became uh the head of the american psychology association and you know one of the most famous psychologists alive uh yeah it's pretty bizarre that you can have a career like that with such bullshit yeah yeah i mean bullshit's more likely to get published i guess because it'll be more shocking and, and unexpected I'm pretty optimistic, though. I think science has gone way, way better. Yeah. So obviously, we've all heard about the replication crisis. How basically all the <laughs> all the headline findings of social psychology have been debunked. The marshmallow test, uh, you know, Stanford Prison, Milgram, Robert's Cave, uh, Willpower. Uh, there, there, there are many, many others. Uh, all the whole priming, nudging, mm -hmm. so much that doesn't replicate. Um. But that's because there's a new generation of much more rigorous young researchers who, yeah, are basically just doing better work and improving the field. Um, so that's great. Yeah, no, it, it is encouraging to see it just we're going to have this hangover, I think, for a while because uh, it just takes a long time to update these beliefs. And a lot of people grew up learning something. I mean, Zimbardo hosted a video series that we watched in my uh, high school psych class. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a whole genre of, of entertainment as well. Uh, when I was a student, I devoured all the Malcolm Gladwell books. Oh, yeah. I love those, you know? It's, and it's, it's massively influenced my writing style. I think he's a fantastic storyteller. Yeah. Um, but as we know, you know, a huge amount of, you know, of, of scientific content in the books like The Tipping Point or... Uh, uh, outliers etc they haven't been replicated yeah yeah no it, it is unfortunate i think yeah having his uh writing style but not the uh, epistemics is the right combination <laughs> hopefully yeah hopefully uh, i mean stories are dangerous tools uh we all know yeah that. Uh, i use 
I use a lot of stories in my work and it still surprises me that often the stories are, in my view, my weakest arguments, but they're often also the most effective. I start my book, Humankind, with uh, the story of kids shipwrecking on an uninhabited island. I call it the real Lord of the Flies. And it, well, what does it tell you about human nature? Nothing, nothing at all, right? Maybe something about Tongan culture in the 60s, but even there I would be, you know, afraid to generalize. But just the fact that there's been one real life Lord of the Flies story in all of human history that we know of, and that that story is pretty much the opposite of the fictional version, Mm -hmm. You know, the real Lord of the Flies is a story of friendship and hope and resilience. Uh, that matters because, again, stories are often self-fulfilling prophecies. And what we assume in each other is what we get out of each other. And, and that's one of the things I try to do in my work is to provide people with different stories, different memes, if you will, um, that hopefully could be performative and, and shape reality. Yeah, yeah no, I, I would encourage people to read read that story i think it was published in the guardian first or um yes yes it's going to be a major hollywood movie as well that's that's awesome uh, yeah no it's it's really yeah. remarkable um i think uh yeah like one of my favorite parts of of the book i had read the initial article and then reading again in the book in greater detail was was awesome i don't want to spoil too much of it but um hmm. there's also a lot of it was like, the highlight of my career as a writer it was at the absolute yeah. highlight it's just that if you really think about the question, what does it tell you about human nature? Well, any story about six boys doesn't right. tell you much, right? But <laughs> the real Lord of the Flies book uh, is like passed on as like this like dark, you know, peak into what people yeah, really yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just literally fixes yeah, And people want to believe <laughs> yeah. that. It's just, uh, yeah, that's striking. Yeah. Is that, but I must admit that at the same time, I mean, I, I binge-watched Succession. Mm-hmm. I binge-watched Game of Thrones. I binge-watched... I mean, I binge-watched all those series. So it's good entertainment. Yeah. It's just that you got to remember that it doesn't tell you much about <laughs> about human nature. Right. It's just really hard to make good fiction about decent people. It very quickly becomes boring. There's this famous line in, I think, Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. Is that Tolstoy yeah. or Dostoevsky? Tolstoy. Tolstoy, right? Where he says that... Um, Every happy family is happy in exactly the same way and all unhappy families are happy in a different Mm -hmm. way. So you've got millions of novels about all the unhappy families and only one novel about the happy family and it's probably a boring (laughs) novel. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's right. Uh, And with Game of Thrones and Succession, I mean, those are shows really about power, right? And and part of your thesis is that power corrupts. So you can at least square that circle. Sure. yeah, so I, I wanted to uh, also talk a little bit about the the presentation of like hunter gatherer lifestyles. Um, I, I came across this like critical review of of the book that was from an anthropology researcher, and it, they were kind of claiming mm-hmm. that like you exaggerated the extent of like hunter gatherer like feminism, egalitarianism, and and, like, and peacefulness. Um, I don't know if you've like come across those kind of critiques or if you've like updated mm-hmm. your views at all on hunter gatherers since since the book came out. Huh. So. I've re- read those reviews, and I think they focus on just a couple of pages in the right. book. Um, I think later in the book, I make it pretty clear that I'm not very confident about what we know about you know, human lifestyles 30 to 40,000 years ago. It's just that the evidence that we have, I think, is suggestive and points in a certain direction that, you know, 
most of these societies were probably relatively egalitarian and relatively feminist, if if you could use that mm -hmm. word, compared to societies that came came after that. Now, I'm not saying that these were, you know, feminist utopias comparable to what we take for granted in the 21st century. But I'm just saying that compared to, as I said, the agricultural societies, um, you could claim that um, many hunter-gatherer societies were were much more egalitarian. Um, sure, but this is, I mean, this is big history, yeah. right? You generalize a, a lot. And what then often happens is that there are super specialists who know much more about, you know, a tiny part of the picture than I do, who get really, really angry at certain lines right. <laughs> in a book here or there. So for example, in, in one of the first versions of, uh, of the book, I, I later changed this in the different in, in later printings, but I had a line about that it never occurred to a hunter gatherer to patent uh, to ask for a uh, what's the word a, a patent, patent? yeah uh, a yeah. patent uh, for an invention, and then you know an anthropologist would write, well, actually, did you know that some songs are really exclusive to this or that tribe, and they kill any everyone <laughs> who else who sings oh, the man. song. Uh, but yeah, obviously what I meant there is that the whole modern system of intellectual property, you know, that didn't exist right. uh, during most of human history. And in that sense, uh, property was much more flexible. Um, yeah. But yeah, I changed that for later. Edition. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a great, well, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, let's see if I, if I, if I could write it again, I would probably... Um, you know, with those reviews, yeah, maybe make some changes here and there, some nuances here and there. I've got this story, story about Ifalik, uh, this mm -hmm. island that was famously very, very peaceful. And the people in the 1950s who lived there could hardly imagine um, that someone could kill another human mm -hmm. being, right? There's this story described by an anthropologist that the um, American military would... would uh, show Hollywood movies with, with a lot of violence in them. And then, yeah, the population was just shocked. I used that story. Um, I wasn't aware when I wrote it that is that actually there's other evidence that in, in the 19th century, so yeah, earlier, uh, this was actually a pretty violent mm -hmm. place. So perhaps, yeah, would include things like that. I doubt it would substantially change the thesis of the whole yeah. book. Um, I'm, I'm still just... And we all are, I think, still pretty unsure of what life was like in prehistory. Yeah. But have you seen Holden Karnofsky's uh, blog series? On, uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah of we, life? we did some, send some emails about that. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty much in line with the with the picture that I describe in, in Humankind. Is that, um, yeah, obviously, quality of life is now the best it's ever been. Yeah. Um, we've seen incredible progress in the last two hundred years. Um, but yeah, the, sh the shape of history is just very weird, where initially life is sort of bad, mm -hmm. but maybe okay-ish, and then it deteriorates a lot, you know, with, with the invention of agriculture. And then that's, that's basically the situation for 10,000 years. And then it, you know, very sh short while ago, uh, basically since the end of the 19th century, we see these enormous improvements. So yeah, the shape of history is very, very right. weird. Uh, and, and that's... Um, yeah, if you compare it to Steven Pinker's view, which is more like the march of progress, 
is that things have gotten gradually better. You know, sometimes with big spurts, obviously, of progress. Mm. But yeah, he paints this picture where life was really, really bad in prehistory. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's wrong, actually. Uh, if I would, yeah, if I would be able to choose, I would much rather, behind the veil of ignorance, right? I, I would much, I would prefer to be born as a hunter-gatherer, a nomadic hunter-gatherer, than as a, as a peasant in some agricultural society. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And this was like intuitive, even... Back in high school, we'd learn about like U.S. history and being like a colonist in like the 1700s versus being like a Native American. I mean, granted that a lot of Native Americans were obviously murdered by American colonists and, and other colonists. Yeah, but, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Living in that state, just like without you know outside invaders, just seems like superior in, in a lot of ways to um, civilized life. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, Douglas Fry. Uh, has argued, I think, really persuasively that we should focus on a particular subset on hunter-gatherers, and that often goes wrong in this discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, so he argues that we really should focus on nomadic hunter-gatherers and not on hunter-gatherers who already have become sedentary, right. because when you become sedentary, then all kinds of processes, often you become more hierarchical, you know, you accumulate private property, and uh, yeah, things like, I think, the patriarchy are, are rooted in those kind of processes. Um, so yeah, I would really recommend people to, um, to read his work. Um, there's one great book called War, Peace and Human Nature. Um, it's a collection of, of, of essays by archaeologists and anthropologists that, that's, that's very useful to read alongside The Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen. Right. And, and yeah, you also found some really glaring flaws in his data on, in addition to this kind of like methodological or strategic choice of like who to focus on which is like yeah often semi-sedentary societies which are not really reflective of um our evolutionary you know most of our evolutionary history he also just has like all these examples of war deaths um or battle deaths of indigenous people or or hunter gatherers that are really just people being killed by colonizers and claim yeah. that this is like yeah. intra you know group violence or something yeah yeah brian ferguson has some some great work there um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, I don't know. I haven't seen Steven Pinker admitting this anywhere. Um, I, I, as I said, I really like his work and he gave me a blurb. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm not going to complain about Pinker, but that, yeah, that would be great if he would, um, engage with that kind of critique. Yeah. I mean, I think you've also said elsewhere that, you know, he mistakes where the source of our progress comes from as well. Right, like like uh, the different social groups and or social movements that have like led to life being so much better for people, and and the kind of activists that have uh, you know built built the like. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, you see at the end of the nineteenth uh, century, you see the rise of these mass movements, labor unions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they are really essential to distributing the fruits of progress. Sometimes we paint this rather simplistic picture of, okay, the steam engine is invented and then, you know, the industrial revolution takes off and progress happens. Um, yeah, it's just that <laughs> sometimes you see these people on the right complaining about the social justice warriors. Yeah. And I'm like, when you talk about progress, you're talking about the social justice warriors right. of the past, right? The abolitionists, they were once social justice warriors. Right. The feminists, they were once social justice warriors. And then sometimes I wonder what the Stephen Pinkers of the 18th century 
would have, you know, uh, how they would have reacted to, for example, the suffragettes uh, who were, you know, seen as insufferable by many elites at yeah. the time. Yeah, no, I, I think this is, is spot on. And uh, yeah, we just should really be cognizant of like the ways in which we might be failing morally now and the uh, the people who are like pushing us past like what society is currently comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. There's this great paper that I recently read. I forgot the author's name. It's about uh, the odds that we are exp- in the middle of a moral catastrophe right, right. now. And he, he makes a couple of arguments, um, also statistic arguments. And it's, well, it's just, it's very, very likely that we are doing monstrous things right now. I mean, there obviously are easy examples such as factory farming, but maybe there are also unknown unknowns, you know, just things that we have no idea that are actually really bad, but maybe the historians of the future will be horrified mm-hmm. by. Um, so the Romans, for example, they thought they were very civilized compared to what they called the barbarians because the Romans didn't uh, uh, sacrifice children to the gods. Um, but then we look at the Romans and we're like, oh my God. Yeah. You know, Gladiatorial combat and crucifixion. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was recently reading this anecdote in a book called The Slave Ship. Um, let's see if I have it here. If you have sure. one minute. Uh, it's this great book by uh, Marcus Radiker in which he uh, paints this picture of what life was like on a slave ship. And he has this one story that really, really blew me away that I couldn't get out of my head. Okay, here I have it. So it's a British captain, Captain William Snellgrave. Um, he was gathering a cargo of Africans on the slave coats of Benin. And then he gets an invitation to speak with a local king. Uh, it's the king of Ardra. So he goes there with uh, 10 sailors who are, you know, heavily armed because he's a little bit suspicious. And Snellgrave goes there and what he sees is, quote, a little Negro child tied by the leg to a stake driven in the ground. Two African priests stood nearby. The child was, quote, a fine boy about eight, 18 months old. So this captain is really angry and like, you know, what are you going to do? And the king replied that it was to be sacrificed that night to his god Egbo for his prosperity. And again, the British captain uh, is shocked. You know, he quickly orders one of his sailors to take the child from the ground in order to preserve him. You know, obviously uh, the Africans get really angry. Um, There's almost a fight, but luckily enough, they calm down. And then the king says uh, that Snellgrave, the captain, had not done well in ordering the sailor to seize the child, it being his property. The captain excused himself by explaining that his religion, quote, expressly forbids so horrid a thing as the putting of a poor innocent child to death. He added, he added the golden rule. The great law of human nature was to do to others as we desire to be done unto. Now, they resolved the conflict uh, by Snellgrave offering to buy the child. Then they have a great party, big feast. They drink a lot of uh, wine. Um, the sailors go back that night to the slave ship and um, Captain Snellgrave asks one of his men, like, do you know uh, you know, a suitable woman to take care of this child? And then, then the man replies, yeah, I already know someone who's probably quite, quite suitable. They arrive at the ship and there is 
there's an African woman who immediately runs toward the child of 18 months old when she sees the child, you know, and starts crying. And, and it becomes clear very quickly that she is mm. the mother. Um, and then Snellgrave writes in his memoirs um, that um, they all... Uh, oh, yeah. He writes, I think... There never was a more moving sight than on this occasion between the mother and her little son. So he had just prevented the child from being sacrificed, uh, reunited mother and son. And then what does he do? Well, he uh, travels to Antigua and sells mother Jesus. and son. End wow. of story. <laughs> and he really could see himself as a good civilized right. Christian. And yeah, he had no idea that we he was in the middle of... a. Moral atrocity, you know, was participating in one of the greatest crimes yeah. of human history, right? The transatlantic slave trade. So, yeah, that really, for me, is one of the fascinating questions. How will the historians of the future look yeah. back on us? Yeah, that, that's that's an amazing story, and I, I, it's sort of like everyone who goes uh, faster than me on the highway is a maniac. Everyone who goes slower than me is a is a grandma. Like I'm like I'm doing <laughs> yeah, the correct yeah, thing, yeah. and like. You know, oh, yeah. like if I'm a reducitarian, like the vegetarians are like too extreme. If I'm a vegetarian, the vegans are too extreme. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this. But in this case, yeah, he genuinely believed he was, he, he didn't see the yeah. problem at all. He could even quote the golden rule, you know, do unto others. You know, he could lecture the African king. Don't you know about the golden rule? That's, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah. And in the paper you mentioned, uh, the possibility of an ongoing moral catastrophe was uh, by Evan G. Williams. I just uh, saw it. I, I've seen this uh, around. Yeah. Um, Would highly recommend. And, yeah. And, and I think this question of like, are we living through one ourselves? Are we participating in that? Um, this is something that, that really animates a lot of people within the effective altruism community. Uh, this is the community that I, I've been a part of for a bit over five years now, and uh, we, we met at a, an affiliated event. Um, and I'm really curious, I think like a lot of people within EA, as it's known, um, are pretty like skeptical of the left and a lot of people on the left, insofar as they're aware of EA, are, are also pretty skeptical. And so I, I think it was like a bit of a surprise to, to see you uh, take the Giving What We Can pledge and like, you know, start mm -hmm. identifying more with this community. And so can you tell me a little bit about like your personal relationship with it and then like your, your thoughts on, on the community more broadly? Sure. So here's the story of Rutger <laughs> and EA. Uh, it all started when I joined the mm -hmm. correspondent. Uh, I was 24 at the time. So that's uh, 10 years ago. And this was also, I think, around the time that EA was being born or maybe a couple of years after that. Um, it was before the publication of Doing Good Better by Will right. McCaskill. So I've known about EA, I think, ever since the beginning. Uh, but especially when they started pushing earning to give, I immediately mm. plugged out. I really hated that. You know, it was the middle of, uh, you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And then to see this philosopher, uh, you know, making this argument that you should become a banker to to give money to the extremely poor. To me, that sounded like stealing from the poor to give it to the extreme <laughs> poor. <laughs> I don't know. It didn't sit well with me. And um, I did read Do Doing Good Better when it came out, and I really liked the argument about charity. Um, 
as you may know, I was a big fan of of charities like mm-hmm. Give Directly. I, I used to work uh, at Give Directly. You know, which are, um, yeah. Oh, great, great. Well, and obviously they're doing the biggest basic income experiment in the history of the world yep. um, in Kenya. So I wrote about them in my first book, Utopia Fearless. So yeah, that was sort of EA-ish. A bit of my thinking was EA adjacent, but I didn't like the individualistic approach. I hated earning to give. Um, and it seemed to me that, you know, which was a, which is still a common EA criticism is that it's not enough focused on systemic change. I mean, this is the standard line from leftists is that we got to change mm-hmm. the system, right? Start the revolution, um, uh, kill capitalism, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's also something I didn't like about effective altruism. It seemed just basically too neoliberal, right. um, too meritocratic, f- focused on just what, yeah, a couple of brilliant narcissistic individuals can achieve. <laughs> <laughs> um so the years went by, I published Utopia Realist, I published Humankind, and then what happened is that I became rich. Um, so yeah, the book did really well and the royalties started pouring in. And yeah, it was much more money than I needed, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's really nice to have the freedom as an author, but at some point you realize, okay, I don't need this. Um, and then I thought, okay, isn't there this movement that has these you know, pretty smart ideas about how to get rid of your money. Um, so yeah, that's basically when I plugged back in, back in again. Um, I started reading more again about particularly giving what we can. Um, I just really, really love giving what we can. I really love the idea of uh, the pledge. Um, I thought that was actually a quite emotional thing to do. I, I pledged in the beginning of 2020. Um, just to yeah, basically promise to your future self that you'll do this for the rest of your life, that you'll bind yourself in this way. To me, that feels like what real freedom should yeah. look like. Uh, the freedom to bind yourself, to make promises to yourself, um, to protect yourself against uh, more simple incentives um, and to yeah, live a really authentic life that's different from what the vast majority of people do. Um, I love that. And this pledge is um, you know, 10% of your pre-tax income to effective charities yeah. for the rest of your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then what also happened is that obviously because of the publication of Humankind, because of Davos, because uh, of my appearance with, with Tucker Carlson, I thought, huh, I have a pretty big platform, right? What to do with that? For example, I've got only probably only one book left to write while I'm still young, when I can still sort of... Uh, you know, believably be pitched as a young author because it takes about three, four years to write a good book, I think. And then p- promoting it takes around two, three years. I'm, I'm 34 now. So yeah, in my 30s, I've got basically one big book left. Um, so how to spend that time? And again, yeah, there's this movement that's pretty serious about, um, yeah, making the most of the time that you have left on this planet. And um, I guess what I love most about effective altruism and what frustrates me most about most of the left is that it practices what it preaches. Um, I'm a big sucker for that. So people who donate their kidneys, the fact that the majority of people are vegans, that they donate such large shares of their income, 
I don't know, that makes the people in the movement so much more believable to me. And for me, that's really essential. That's also, by the way, why I think, you know, the whole billionaire problem with EA is is really, really problematic and something to keep thinking about. Yeah, You may have seen the reaction to the Patagonia guy, you know, giving away his company. Right. People love the fact that it's irreversible. You know, they they really, really deeply love that fact that here's this super rich guy who has billions of dollars and he just gives it away and he can't access, access it again after that. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we need in in billionaire philanthropy in EA as well. There's surely all kinds of practical considerations, but just as a costly sacrifice, um, I think that's something to think about. Uh, maybe, I don't know, we should fund a group of really smart lawyers to find some way in which you still have the flexibility um, to focus on the causes that you want to do, uh, but that you can say to the public, look, I've really tied my hands here. I can't access this money anymore. It's not, I'm, I'm just not a billionaire anymore. It's yeah. somewhere else. So uh, yeah, maybe people like Sam Bankman-Fried and Duska Moskovich could do something like that. I, for me, it would make, um, yeah, the optics of the movement more powerful. And it's, it's, it's really what, what, what's, draw me to it again. And also the fact that they started to de-emphasize the earning to give part of it all. Right. And more and focus more on, yeah, movement building and, and basically other ways to to make a difference. Um, yeah. And, and also reading some of the stories, like, for example, I read Leah Garcia's book. Um, Grilled. Grilled yeah. about her work and um, the fight against factory farming. I mean, Effective altruism has done so much good in the to the animal rights movement. Uh, anyway, um, I love all of that, and that's uh, that's why I'm back uh, yeah. and intend to, um, yeah, basically devote the hours I've left <laughs> to advancing the cause. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm currently thinking about writing an EA adjacent book that will be. Uh, yeah, that will encourage people to raise their level of moral ambition. Yeah, uh, I, I want to dig into a bunch of that, and it is very encouraging to hear. Um, I have to plug, Leah Garces was a guest on the show a while back mm-hmm. and uh, enjoyed her book and the conversation with her. Um, I, I don't think a majority of EAs are vegans, but it's definitely much, much higher than uh, the, the base rate uh, for I was in an EA event. I've never seen so many vegans in one room. <laughs> um, and it's not that... EA philosophy tells you that, you know, these kind of individual consumer decisions are the most important. It's just that I find people who practice what they preach so much more believable. Right. Um, right. Yeah. 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 There's like this uh, book, like if you're if you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That I haven't told you that story yet. So I was doing a theater tour in the Netherlands with my book. Mm-hmm. And well, it... Uh, it did really well. So night after night, like six, 700 people in the audience and they all pay like 20, 25 euros for a ticket. Well, do the math. You make a lot of money <laughs> right. in, in one night. And there was this guy who was um, assisting me and helped me to prepare you know, my preparation. He had come up with some of my best jokes for the night. And um, I knew what he was earning you know, all those nights. And it, I mean, it was a decent decent wage he was getting but the gap between what he was earning and what i was earning was vast right and there was this one night and i 
I've never asked him if it was intentionally, but he, <laughs> backstage, he was reading um, this book. How come, uh, if you're a egalitarian, how come you're so rich? Uh, who's the author? I think it's G.A. Cohen. Uh, yeah, G.A. Cohen, yeah. So he was reading this book. And I, just before I went on stage, I saw that title. And uh, yeah, it had a big impact on me. Uh, here I am talking about human decency. Here I am talking about eradicating poverty. And how come I'm so rich? It's not that I had, you know, really changed my lifestyle. It's not that I was spending my, this money, but I hadn't really committed to donating it yet. I had been postponing that decision, basically. Right. Um, so just seeing the title of of that book, <laughs> How Come You're So Rich If You're a Gitarian, was like, yeah, indeed. Yeah. I'm such a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's been... Yeah, it's been just, it's its really liberating and um, fun uh, to practice what you preach. Right. You know, it's uh, its also one of the reasons why I became vegan, I think now, two years ago. I already was vegetarian. Um, I, the, the step from vegetarian to vegan was pretty difficult, I must say. Yeah. In, in, in the Netherlands, they throw you into a cauldron of cheese when you're young. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, but I managed to do that. I mean, I'm not like a super fanatic or something like that. If I'm traveling, uh, then sometimes I eat vegetarian. But uh, uh, yeah, that's also been really rewarding to practice what you preach. Even though I do recognize that's not my, that it's not my biggest contribution. Sure, I contribute probably much more with what I write and and how I reach other people. But yeah, I think I'm much more believable if I actually do what I say. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think... Uh you had this great essay in in the correspondent about uh, kind of like this left wing moral indulgence. Um, where yeah 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 can you yeah. can you tell that story a little bit? Sure. So, um, there's there's the right wing moral indulgence, right? Is that people got to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? It's all individual responsibility. It's like I don't have to do anything because people need to take care of themselves, mm -hmm. and that's how you deflect all criticism and 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 deflect your moral responsibility and in the essay i argue that there's a left-wing version of that as well and what then people on the left what they do is they say look um it's yeah it's pointless to become vegan it's pointless to donate so much money to charity or whatever because we got to change the system right right because shell because uh facebook because amazon right Jeff Bezos is the problem. We need systemic change. We don't need individual change, blah, blah, blah. And for me, that's a way of evading responsibility. Obviously, it's both, right? Yeah. Systems are comprised of individuals. And if I look at the most impressive, effective activists throughout history, I think pretty much always they practice what they preach. Um, so I spent the last one, one and a half year studying the abolitionists um in the 18th century you know many of them quakers um just recently finished an essay about anthony benazay who was probably the most important abolitionist intellectual of the 18th century you know he wrote so many of the uh important texts so much of the research developed many of the arguments that were later used and um yeah all these people benazay benjamin lay they practice what they preached um it's it's astounding how many early abolitionists were vegetarian, by the right. way. Um, Benjamin Lay was almost vegan, even though the word didn't even exist at the time. Yeah, um, they gave away a huge amount of their money. 
Um, I have always believed that EA is pretty similar to the Quakers. Uh, it's, uh, and I think it's, it should really keep this Quakerish element to it. The aesthetic is important. It's really important. So that's sometimes, I mean, I've been at some of these conferences. Uh, sometimes maybe they get a little bit too fancy. Yeah. Right? I, I completely understand it if people fly, say, business class, if they have a really important speech. And I completely get it if people in the A movement, you know, hop on a private yet, if that helps them to convince a certain billionaire, right? Mm -hmm. Do what works. It, sure. But the aesthetics is important as well. And that's why these costly sacrifices, as I think anthropologists call it, um, are really important as well. We shouldn't get too comfortable. You shouldn't suffer for suffering's sake. But yeah, it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think like, as, um, and, and some context for those who are less aware, like effective altruism started out very much focused on personal sacrifice and, and donating your own income to helping others in really cost-effective ways. Um, and then in the last few years in particular, the amount of resources dedicated towards the, the community, the ideas has grown a lot. And this has changed the material conditions quite a bit. And so you've got uh, people who, yeah, you've got like conferences that are now nicer and fancier and, and a justification is like, well, if you're getting like very wealthy people to come to these things and then convincing them mm -hmm. that, that that can be worthwhile. But then it does create this issue where it's like, okay, if joining this community no longer requires you to make much of a sacrifice at all, and it's actually like a very interesting job that pays well and gets you respect from mm -hmm. your peers, um, then you just stop selecting for altruism per se. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, the way I think about this and like, like how I approach it is I, I think it increases your, um, the importance of like costly signals, like um, going vegetarian or vegan or like donating mm -hmm. some sub significant fraction of your own income. And then I think if you want to justify something, some kind of expense as like a, this is like actually to help me do my job more mm -hmm. effectively then just have like an expense policy that covers that. Um, so if it's like actually really important to like spend some money to travel, like like get an Uber instead of taking the subway that takes like twice as long because you can like get more work done. Like that's like something you should yeah. expense as a business yeah. expense rather than just like giving people really, really high salaries and like suddenly, you know, they're making private sector salaries doing work that is like, you know, supposed to be like altruistic and, and nonprofit in nature. Mm -hmm. So here's my theory. Mm -hmm. I think that when EA started, it was basically uh, about people who were already EAs <laughs> uh, who were finding out that they weren't alone. Right. So there's a very small percentage of the population that is just, well, probably there's some genetic reason or biological reason or I don't know, but, you know, who are just very altruistic from a very early age. And that's the story you you see early on, right? People like, well, Will McGaskill, right. uh, Leah Garces, uh, Julia Wise, Alexander Berger, right? All these people have these stories of being, yeah, very, very altruistic and unusually altruistic from an early age. I wasn't like that at all, <laughs> you know? I'm not saying I was some psychopath, but I was just a normie healthy teenager who mostly cared about himself and having fun. Yeah. Um, when I started my career, um, my main goal was I don't know, becoming successful, becoming a famous writer. You know, it was the, the whole idea of doing this 80,000 hour career guide and thinking about, you know, how to have the most altruistic impact. If you would have told me that when I was 22, 23, I, I would have thought it was very silly probably. Yeah. Um, 
Now, what is, I think, now happening to effective altruism is that um, at some point, the super altruists, you've run through them, mm. right? Everyone's in the movement already. And if you want to expand, you got to start finding people, well, like me, who are more, they're, they're initially more interested in status. And what status is, is obviously highly malleable. So for some people, status is getting a fancy car, uh, getting rich, living in a big house or something like that. Uh, but you can redefine what it means to be cool, you know, to be high status. And I guess that's sort of happened during my engagement with EA is that I, yeah, now care much more about doing good. And I, it's become a mixture of vanity and idealism right. for me, I guess. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of time studying the biography of Thomas Clarkson, you know, one of the most important evolutionists in the 18th century. And his career started when he was 25 and he participated in an essay contest for Cambridge University. And he had to answer this question, is it moral to enslave other people? And at the time, he had only one goal. He just wanted to win the essay contest because it would give him literary prestige. He, he writes about this in his memoirs, that that was the reason he participated. And he had won you know, the contest for juniors and now he wanted to win the big one. Uh, and he was dreaming about a big career in the Church of England, and that was that what was what was driving him. But because of his engagement with the ideas, and because he was then researching slavery, and he encountered the works of people like Anthony Benazé, um, he changed, right? And there's this beautiful moment in in his in his memoir, in his history of uh, the fight against the slave trade where he's, he had just won the essay contest. He had read it out at the, in the Senate House at Cambridge University. He came back uh, or traveled back to London. And then suddenly his, he, he stops his horse. He sits by the side of the road and thinks, if these things are really true, something should someone should do something about it. Yeah. And what you see there, again, it's a mixture of vanity and idealism. He could see himself as a hero, as a heroic figure who would just do this. So yes, it was, he genuinely cared about the suffering of the slaves, but he also genuinely cared about how he would be remembered by the historians of the future, yeah. right? He just wanted to do something awesome with his career. Um, so yeah, th those are obviously the two main motivations of th that can push people into effective altruism. One is guilt. You read Peter Singer's, you know, Famine, Affluence, Poverty essay, and you're like, oh God. I got to do this. Yeah. But the other is, is just excitement, is that you can just live a much more interesting life, a much more valuable life um, by, uh, yeah, by taking these ideas seriously. And I guess I'm more in the latter camp. I'm also, I mean, I'm also swayed a little bit by the, by the Peter Singer essay, but I read that, I think, when I was a student as well, and it didn't have the huge impact on me that it had on others. Um, so that's, that's now... I guess one of the ways in which effective altruism could, could become so much bigger than it is right now, um, if you appeal to, say, the corporate lawyers, the consultants, the bankers, who are not psychopaths, uh, you know, the, <laughs> not all, but, the, the, but also not super idealistic, right. right? It's just that they're ambitious. 
They want to make a name for themselves. Yeah. They're looking for status. And what I would like to contribute with my next book is to redefine what it means to be successful, right? And, and particularly appeal to this group of people. Uh, it's a group of people that, yeah, as I said, they, they don't read Famine and Effluence and Poverty and are like, okay, I got to change my life. But if you say to them, look, I see you founded this company that sells some kind of product that we don't really need to impress people we don't really like, and that's fine, and you've IPO'd, and now you're rich, but there are a lot of rich people. And I'll trust me, I met, I met a lot of rich people, and most of them are not very interesting. <laughs> uh, but now you, you could do something different, right? Do you want to do something that's genuinely exciting? Do you really want to make a difference in this world? I think that is what appeals to a lot of, of highly talented and successful people out there. Um, so yeah, that's sort of my theory of how EA could become way, way bigger than it is right now. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I think that I'm maybe somewhere in between where, you know, I always conceived of myself as like doing good things for others with, with my life and career. Um, but also from a young age, I kind of had this like insane desire to leave some massive legacy and like, you know, make a big impact mm -hmm. on the world, which, um, <laughs> You know, started out with like, yeah, it was just like kind of like ego driven or something. And I feel like a yeah. lot of my life and career has been like sublimating that desire into something that actually helps others and is not yeah, just about that personal gratification. You see it in Thomas Clarkson's biography is that initially he seems to be, a, yeah, quite narcissistic mm -hmm. um, in a good way. You know, I'm, I'm not completely against narcissism. Sometimes again, you know, drive people forward uh, or a little bit of vanity is not all that bad. Um, but then as he became older, you know, he be, yeah, the work changed him. Yeah. You see, maybe that's also a fact in general of becoming older is that you, you know, become less narcissistic. I'm not sure. doesn't seem to be happening to some of our political leaders, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so when he, he was, when he was buried, he was buried in an unmarked grave, you know, just like wow. the other Quakers did, um, and uh, he wanted a very small funeral for himself. So he was really changed by the work. Um, and uh, I'm not saying I'm a saint, but I have I think I've changed as well by just engaging with these ideas. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, when I got involved with, with effective altruism, it was, uh, I wrestled with the ideas for a while on my own and, and you know, took the giving what we can pledge and, and um, mm -hmm tried to change my career and stopped eating animals and made all these like, you know, sacrifices. Um, and five and a half years on, I feel like I'm doing the most interesting work I've ever done. And I'm surrounded by mm -hmm. people who are kind and, and smart and thoughtful and uh, altruistic and uh, meeting interesting people left and right and, and feeling like, you know, sleeping well at night because I feel like the, the work I'm doing is having an impact and I'm yeah, kind of like, yeah. did I really make a sacrifice? Um, you know, I, yeah, I, yeah, that's true. I, that's you know, true. obviously yeah. in some ways, like, you know, it is harder to, to keep a vegetarian or, or vegan diet um, than to be an omnivore. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, having more money for your personal consumption means like nicer vacations or, or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But it seems like a really good trade. And <laughs> I don't want to pitch it necessarily as mm -hmm. that because you still have to be motivated to do the work and, and like genuinely, I think, committed to, to helping others. But Mm -hmm. I just feel like much more satisfied, I think, than like the people that I knew in my first job out of school, which yeah, is like yeah. working at McKinsey, which is like, you know, smart people doing high status work, but like often yeah, hating yeah, their, yeah. their careers. Yeah. What I also loved 
and still love about EA is the feeling of being at the bottom of the ladder and being one of the least smart persons. <laughs> um, when I was a student uh, and I, I joined this student society in Utrecht, I was 18 years old. I, I, I was a pretty lazy student. I was also pretty lazy in high school. And then I joined the student society where there were a lot of older guys discussing Wittgenstein and Sartre and, and you know, all these philosophers that I'd never heard about. And I was like, huh, this is cool. I want to be part of this. So status was redefined for me. In high school, it was high status to be really good at, you know, computer games and at, at Call of Duty or something. Yeah. And now it was high status to at least pretend to know a lot about Wittgenstein. I don't think we really knew anything <laughs> about it, but we were really good at pretending. And sometimes, yeah, it's, it starts with pretending uh, before it becomes real. Um, so you get older and you become like 50 or 60 year and you realize, huh, I'm at the bottom of the ladder or at the, at the top of the ladder and this is boring and you move on. And then you start your career and I was like, okay, I want to become a... An author. I actually want to publish books. I want to publish book for books for a large audience, and then you pull that off, and and especially when I finished Humankind and it was successful, I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna do that again, right? Or I don't want to be the smartest smartest person in the room because then I don't learn anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really love about going to EA events is that I feel so stupid <laughs> compared to most people yeah. I talk to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I wrestle with this as well, where it's just like, yeah, I think it's just a lot of people who were top of their whatever throughout their life. And then they're just collected in, in, in one place. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I really thrive in environments like that. I'm like, huh, awesome. There's so much to learn. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, do, it doesn't make me nervous or anxious or whatever. Um, I've never seen myself as really intelligent. I'm not stupid, um, but I'm not super smart. You know, when it reading a book, for example, I'm not a fast reader. It takes some time before I, I really understand what's on the page. Uh, I know what I'm good at. I'm good at separating, um, you know, what's important from what's not so important. Mm. Uh, and I'm good. I'm good at telling stories. Um, I, I enjoy that, but I've never seen myself as particularly intelligent or anything. Well, I, you could have fooled me from, uh, <laughs> from the <laughs> not, not that you see yourself that way, but, uh, no, I, I, I think, uh, I've enjoyed your work a lot and, uh, yeah, I've also struggled with this sort of not imposter syndrome necessarily, but just feeling like, oh, wow, like I'm really around people who are just like quicker and just know more than I do and, and like figuring out like yeah, yeah, what yeah, I can yeah, bring yeah. to the table there. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that many people in the EA don't realize how weird they are <laughs> for the rest of society. And that's a real communication issue. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, it's very, very weird. <laughs> um, and uh, very counterintuitive and sometimes even insulting for for many people outside of the movement. And uh, yeah, I guess it, there, it also helps if the movement would expand a little bit and bring more, quote unquote, normal people uh, in. Right. Um, yeah, because these super altruists, they're very, very rare. I mean, very impressive. I love them all, yeah. but they have a very unusual uh, way of looking at the yeah. world. Yeah, and, and I think that can be, I mean, I know some people who are close to like moral saints, right? And, and they live mm -hmm. in such a way that is extremely admirable, you know, 
rescuing animals but like not taking vacations uh and and sort of like thinking it's immoral to take a vacation and you know you can make mm-hmm. a pretty strong argument based on the same ideas from like peter singer uh that that's the case but then mm-hmm. if you think about like what it takes to scale or like yeah which ideas are going to be most uh, persuasive to people it's like living a life that looks like it's fun from the outside and you have mm-hmm. some indulgences, which again, like are hard to justify and like strict utilitarian grounds may actually just become, it's like an advertisement for what it means to be involved in this community. And that yeah, involves, yeah. yeah, like traveling if you want to and having kids, if you want to, and like, uh, you know, yeah. enjoying yourself as well as, you know, doing what you can for yeah. others. Yeah, I recently published an essay in Dutch on the correspondence. So the, the Netherlands is my mm-hmm. laboratory where I test out all my ideas. And last Monday, I had an essay um, with the title, No, You're Not Good the Way You mm. Are. Right? It's sort of like the anti-self-help <laughs> approach. Um, where my message to, say, the consultants and the bankers, etc. I think of Harvard University, 45% of people go into consultancy or wow. finance. And my message is, like, it's not not like immoral you probably contribute something right there are sure there are a lot of bankers who create destructive products that may cause the next financial crash but most of them, i mean finance is a surface we need that so you do contribute something but compared to what you could do with your life right is this really how you're going to spend your eighty thousand hours is that really what you yeah. want to do with it right and that framing is i think extraordinarily effective for this particular group of people um, because if you say, oh, it's immoral to be a banker, you're so selfish, you know, you're taking for the poor and then you're, you're, you're spending it on, on your own luxury. They're like, huh, whatever, you're, you're just mm-hmm. jealous. You couldn't compete, right? You can't do our, the work that only super smart people like us right. could do. But then if you say, I see what you're doing, but pff, is, is that really, is, is that, that the all best it? You can do? Is that, pff, yeah, that hurts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that hurts. It's way more yeah. effective. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, no, and I think you're good at reaching people in in different different ways, and uh, that kind of challenge. I I feel like a big part of like why EA took off the when it did was it it switched things from an obligation framing to an opportunity framing, and and so Peter Singer's mm-hmm. essay, you know, famine, affluence, and, and morality was talking about yeah, like you're obligated morally under these like very basic assumptions to save this child's life, even if it means ruining your, your nice shoes, or your fancy suit. Yeah. Um, but then like, well, McCaskill and Toby Ord, when they would talk about it, it's like, wow, imagine you just like save somebody's life in a burning building. And you did that like once or twice a yeah. year, like you could actually just do that. Yeah. And um, this opportunity framing, I think it is like, it's true in the sense that, you know, you do have that opportunity. Um, but I think like the obligation framing is like more, philosophically consistent it like like it, it's like more yeah. like the steel trap of logic yeah but i i think yeah. that inversion um was a huge reason for why ea took off when it did combined with like, the internet and like mm-hmm. like other variable variables that sure. are like hard to know um yeah. Yeah. and so i think like coming up with ways to package the same kind of core ideas um mm-hmm. that actually get people on board like if you're really utilitarian or, or consequentialist you might you, you should be thinking about uh, how these will yeah. be received, not just like what is tr- capital C yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I think you need both framings. And just the fact that there's a movement yeah. now is so, so helpful. You know, if I write right. an essay, like I just mentioned, uh, and I can just say, well, go to this website, look up these people. I mean, that's so, so helpful. Because otherwise it would just yeah. be 
you know, one scream in the dark. And people would be like, huh, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I'm super excited for, for your next book. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit, but could you give us a, a preview? So as I said, the Netherlands is my laboratory where I test out these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I've now tested, I think, four different chapters. Uh, also, the essay you just mentioned about the leftist indulgence of also always complaining about, mm-hmm. oh, we should think about the system. Um, I've written actually one pretty general intro, I think, into EA. Uh, very very story, st- story-driven um, intro into the, uh, into the basic concepts. Um, so yeah, got, got, got a couple of more ideas, but I'll probably be spending the next one or two years um, writing more chapters, testing out different ideas on a Dutch audience. Uh, it's my huge focus group. I've got 70 million people here. <laughs> and then... Uh, That's great. Uh, yeah. Then I'll uh, edit it into a book, publish it here in the Netherlands, learn a couple of other lessons, and then we translate it. Uh, so yeah, as I said, it could take like three or four years before it reaches the uh, English-speaking world. But then, it sh- by then it should be really good, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of like comedians testing out the material in, in like the comedy cellar, the comedy store, yeah, where it's yeah. not recorded, and then that becomes a That's special. That's how you do it. That's um, how you do it. So for example, I've got this one thing I'm still struggling with. Um, in the essay that I published recently, I said something like, um, this piece is mainly uh, written for people under 30 without an electric lawnmower and without um, uh, a Labrador and without, uh, what's it called, a pie? Uh, maybe this is a very Dutch thing. Anyway, it's seen as a very bourgeois um, attribute to have in your house. Uh, and I said, if you're if if you have those things, if you're over thirty, I've basically written you all you off because people don't really change their lives after that. Right? It's hopeless. <laughs> you've got your mortgage. Yeah. You've got your two kids. Um, I don't expect anything from you. And so my theory there was that people in their teens and twenties would read it and would feel special, and like, oh, you know, I can still live an amazing life. It's still it's still open. Yeah. And people in their 30s and 40s would, would just read it and would be angry. Like, I want to prove you wrong, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> oh, that's funny. That was my theory. Yeah, I, I do, yeah, I, I do think there's something to this, which like within EA especially, it's just rare that people above the age of like 35, I think, get like super committed to it because you have yeah. too many other attachments yeah. and, and you've like built an entire life and, and uh, it's hard to incorporate all of the ideas. Yeah, you don't want to write them off though. Uh, I mean, EA shouldn't be a youth movement uh, or anything like that. Yeah. Especially if we're serious about all these exis- existential threats, right? Then we don't have the time right. to wait for all these uh, teenagers to grow up and save the world. Uh. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, a- Andy Weber is like, I think, a former assistant secretary of defense who helped get uh, uranium out of Kazakhstan after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, mm-hmm. And he's, you know, in his 50s or 60s. And he loves hanging out with uh, EAs and, uh, you know, just came to a party recently at <laughs> EA Global. Very good. And, yeah, and, Very and good. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's cool to have people like that around too, have like yeah. done some shit. <laughs> it would also be really from. great if the movement could, you know, genuinely expand into other countries because it's very yeah. small still in continental Europe. Um, yeah. There are cultural reasons for that as well. Uh, for the the French, for example, 
they just don't like the aesthetic of effective altruism. I think they they just think it's ugly, <laughs> right? <laughs> there's not enough wine. There's not enough. I don't know. <laughs> it's just uh, not enough obscure French philosophy, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they have a very different view of what it means to be an intellectual. But then, uh, yeah, the Netherlands is culturally pretty similar to the UK and is very um, focused on Anglo-Saxon culture. Mm. So I think it sh should have been much bigger already in the Netherlands. It is it is taking off now, but um, yeah, could could be so much bigger. Uh, and there's, I think, a lot of potential there. Just yeah. yeah, just so much basic movement building still to be done. Yeah, uh, and yeah, my experience as an author is that it's for people who are really. Um, have been living certain ideas for a long time it's very hard for them to know what it's like to encounter them for the first time that's right. very difficult the curse of uh, knowledge yeah yeah so it's something i have to guard myself against as well it's you you always immediately got to start writing as soon as your learning curve starts because mm. otherwise you can't yeah you don't know at some point you don't know anymore what it's like not to know right Right. Yeah. I, I think there's a ton of opportunity for growing in, in the global South as well. And um, I, I think that it would be good to have just like more diverse perspectives internationally, um, especially. And uh, I think that their EA started out with a lot of like, how do we help people yeah, in, yeah, in the worst yeah. off situations? Yeah. And um, especially just, just a huge group of small donors, right? So mm -hmm. giving what we can, why don't we have local versions of that of the pledge etc i think we um i've been thinking about uh setting that up at least here in the netherlands because i mean dutch people are not going to join uh a, a british organization right they're not going to mm. do that um but if i would be able to go on a dutch talk show and say look we've launched uh, which would be the dutch translation mm -hmm. um i think it could really take off here as well um yeah so yeah there's just so much so much to be done and i find that super exciting i i really you know when i was uh 24 25 or also during my student days i was often thinking like oh i wish i was uh a christian or i wish i didn't become an atheist because i was really looking for a church mm. <laughs> maybe this sounds weird but no i i, I was really missing this feeling community. of being part of something bigger yeah uh, yeah just the feeling that people share your ideas and that's that's another thing i really love about yeah. And I think, yeah. by the way, it should be really broad church and there should be room for a strong disagreement um, and, and controversies, right? Yeah. Um, I, for, whether it's about long-termism or the role of billionaires, etc. Um, I think there should be room for, for really big disagreements. But in general, the idea of, uh, yeah, or the feeling of being part of a big international community or that you could go to, I don't know, Vietnam and, and look up the local EAs and have a good time. I love that. Yeah, no, it is awesome that people can, you know, I can travel somewhere and, and like stay on somebody's couch and we've like only just met and because yeah, we have yeah, this, yeah, this thing yeah. in common, there's like this trust there. We yeah. also host people in New York uh, pretty regularly as well. And it's just like, yeah, it's this really nice exchange of people and ideas and mm -hmm. um, you have this like baseline level of, of trust and, and shared values that, that goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Rucker, I, I know you've got to, uh, go pick up your kid. Um, yeah. 
So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat and uh, yeah, really loves humankind. We touched on so little of the book compared to how much is in there. There's a ton of great ideas, interesting stories. Um, and yeah, I am really glad we got a chance uh, to talk. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.